This meeting is being recorded. All right, so everyone today is, uh, let me think now, it's the 20th of June, 2022, Living Stronger Longer, Living Your Best Life After Age 40, the podcast. And today I'm very pleased to have a person that I hope I, I'm not being presumptuous by calling him a friend. We've known each other since the mid 90s. Uh, at first, I read Andrew Bay's articles in the, I believe it was called the Super Slow Exercise Standard. Was it called the Standard, the newsletter? It was the uh, Super Slow Exercise Standard. And it occurred to me when I was uh, thinking about that, that in 94, 95, when we were reading news newsletters, the internet was virtually in its real infancy, if at all, around 94, 95, and it's kind of, when you think about that, the internet's not that old. Uh, in, in thinking about that, and I read his articles, I participated in the exercise standard, and I know that Drew over the years uh, has continued all the way through doing uh, exercise instruction and writing, and he has his own uh, website, bay.com, I believe, and he has yes. also uh, the Bay Hit List, which is a, a private group uh, that many people, whether they be practitioners or personal trainers or exercise instructors, I prefer that term better, um, go to for information. And I can tell you that for me, this has been an extremely valuable source. There's a bunch of videos on there and things, demonstrations, things like that. So when I need to find something out, I have resources. Probably my biggest challenge with the hit list, Drew, is finding the time to take advantage of all the resources that are there because there's so many. Material for it since the beginning of 2018. And there are currently, I think a little over, I'd have to go back and count. I think there's currently a little over 400 videos on there. And they range from 20 minutes to sometimes an hour and a half. I think most of them are right around 40 minutes or so. Um, so there's there's about 300-something hours of uh, video and additional writing on top of all of that. And I still have about 200 more videos that I haven't even uploaded from when I moved the group onto the new platform. I, I need to go and review those because some of those I'll, I'll re-upload. Some of those I'm just going to re-record and, and update. So, yeah, there's a, I, I just put together a new section specifically to guide new members towards the series that they should watch first uh, before they start getting into the more advanced stuff. And even that totals around 20 something hours. So um, there is about as much material in the group right now in the videos and in the writing as you would probably expect from you know, about three or four years of uh, college. Yeah, and and I'm thinking, because I, I think I read the Nautilus Bodybuilding book in 1982. I had started being on a fitness kick, and I'm really grateful that early on, after starting with a number of different things and vastly overtraining, I discovered that book. From there, all the other Darden books, and of course, eventually the Super Slow Exercise Manual, uh, which I actually still have my original copy of. And then I wound up picking up the phone and calling Ken. I guess I had a question on something or other, and I don't remember if his phone number was in the book at the time or where I got his number from. 
having a chat and, and he seemed to think that I asked a rel relatively intelligent question because he said, you should be part of the guild, which was in, in uh, force at the time. And then that's when I first read your articles. And so at that time, now I, I know you're, we both have gray hair now, uh, but, back, <laughs> but back then, so because what's, what's our age difference? I'm 63 and you're just about to be 50, right? Well, I'm 48. I'm going to be 49 in August, so so almost there. I I started going gray in my 20s, though. It's just genetic. So you're almost too young to have gone too far down the wrong road, shall we say, of fitness. You were pretty young when you discovered proper training. I I was very lucky. I I found Mike Menser's articles in Iron Man magazine in 1993 when he was training Dorian Yates and started doing hit then. Prior to that, yeah, I read the Muscle magazines. I had friends who were into bodybuilding and they swore by all the Weeder magazines where they read muscle and fitness and flex religiously. And so I was, I was heavily influenced by them uh, grade school and in high school. And I used to train. Well, I, I should say I was in the gym. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I work out two hours. They don't, they don't work out two hours. They're in the gym for two hours doing a bunch of different stuff, mostly resting. But I was in the gym for maybe an hour to two hours, depending on how much time I had. A lot of times four or five days a week. Um, after uh, school and high school, I would go and we had a gym set up uh, in the, on the stage, uh, the high school that I went to, and uh, we would be in there just mainly screwing. Nobody really knew what the hell they were doing, just following all the muscle magazine stuff and wasted hundreds and hundreds of hours. And I, I, I shouldn't say wasted. It was just very inefficient. Um yeah, I got, I put some uh, on some muscle, but this was in high school too. I might have I might have gained the same amount of size if I had done nothing at all. And uh, ended up by the end of high school, I was maybe about 160, 165 pounds. I don't have a really big frame. I'm about five eight. I've actually got a small frame, about five eight. And uh, then I started in. I had more free time. I started increasing the time that I was spending in the gym. And I started doing a lot more running and other things. And I actually lost a lot of size as I increased this time. Probably wasn't eating enough too, but just grossly overtraining and ended up being down around 150 something. So then when I started reading Menser's stuff, I figured, you know, what I'm doing isn't working. You know, Mr. Olympia's doing it. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I cut my workouts back instead of, working out two hours. And at the time, I think it was about two hours, four days a week, usually doing some sort of bro split and then doing all the running and all the other crap on the side, plus a lot of martial arts training, just too much to the point now that I have some nagging hip issues that I think are, are from excess, the combination of excessive running and excessive uh, martial arts training. When I cut back, to, to Menster's stuff at the time. I was just working out maybe about 15 to 20 minutes on a Monday and a Friday. And within about half a year, I went from, I think it was about 150 to 152 
to, I remember weighing in at 183 pounds, and this was in lean condition. I actually was doing mannequin modeling at the local general nutrition center. And so I was lean enough at 183 to be getting paid basically to stand there with, with uh, just wearing those. You remember the goofy workout clothes that they had in the, the early 90s, spandex, the stripes, and the singlets, and all that stuff. And uh, I've had people say, that's impossible. There's no way you can put on 30 pounds in that sort of time frame. But again, I was 165, grossly overtrained, too much running, all this other stuff. My legs had shrunk and went down to 150 from there. So I was regaining half of that. And then the rest of that was, was new muscle. So... It wasn't, it wasn't a 30-pound new muscle gain right. that time. I need to clarify that because I, know, I do know that sounds like, holy crap, it's 30 pounds. Now, it was um, – I was regaining size that I lost because of the gross overtraining. And then on top of that, you know, building additional muscle. And recently had uh, a, a DNA profile done by DNA Fit. And so I thought this is interesting because it showed that um, I am a, based on their, their uh, analysis, I need longer time to recover between workouts than most. And so this would also say, yeah, that I was uh, making a huge mistake by doing as much as I was as frequently as I was. But uh, so that one thing led to another and because of how much muscle I put on so quickly during that time, people in the gym noticed and they started asking me for advice. And I found myself helping other people with their exercises, talking to them about um, Mike Menser's heavy duty, which was really Mike Menser's take on Arthur Jones Nautilus training principles. And, uh, decided that this is something that I wanted to do. And at the time I was going to University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, I was studying uh, human biology and exercise physiology and uh, decided, you know what, I'll, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a job doing this. Cause I was, I was training a few people, uh, but I was training them at places where I was not employed as a trainer and they didn't uh, like that. I was doing that. I was just showing up and, and uh, charging people to, to work out with them. And so I decided I need to do this properly. And it was just a very fortunate coincidence. At the time, there was a gym in Green Bay that had recently become a Gold's Gym franchise. They were an established gym, but they got the franchise and they put an announcement in the paper that they were doing this big opening thing. And I went there and I talked to one of the owners, uh, Mike Moran about getting a job as a trainer. And I was going in there expecting that, I don't know how this is going to go because I knew that what I was doing with uh, Menser's, you know, the heavy duty training flew in the face of most of the stuff that most of the people believed. But instead of telling me to get the hell out because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, he said, he asked what I was doing. I started talking and he said, he said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm a phone client of Mike Menser's. So it was, it was perfect. He happened to already have been doing this stuff for years, already following all those principles 
and he was already familiar with Ken Leisner's stuff and, and all of that. And so he was also involved in the Super Slow Exercise Guild at the time. And I can't remember how he got involved, but he was doing phone consultations with Mike Menser monthly. And we were able to do those as a conference. Uh, myself and one of the other trainers and Mike could sit in on these. And this is how I met Mike Menser. And we continued to talk from then until unfortunately you know, he died back in uh, 2001. And Mike Moran also introduced me to Ken Hutchins. And uh, this was about late 94 that I started working for Mike. <clears throat> and through you know, attending one of the exercise, the Super Slow Exercise Guild conventions and talking with Ken over the phone, eventually decided I wanted to move to Florida and work for Ken uh, so that I could learn more of this stuff. And at the beginning of 1996, I think it was, uh, it was February 1996, just uh, packed everything up and, and drove down here and started uh, I. I had to build up my own clientele. That's a whole other uh, thing, but I uh, was working part-time doing uh, fitness equipment sales and the rest of the time just shadowing uh, Ken as he trained people and helping out in the shop. He was already doing the retrofit kits and later started building equipment. Gradually built up a clientele and then just uh, pretty much trained people for most of the time from then until about uh, just 2016, 2017 was cutting back. Um, right. I, I, At the very beginning there, uh, when you worked with Ken, was there, I seem to remember there was a level one super slow certification and there was a there, master certification. There were two levels. There was the level one certification, which is what would be required just to demonstrate enough knowledge and instructional competence to be able to instruct people in a super slow facility. Then there was the level two certification. And if a person passed the level two certification, Ken might appoint them a master instructor. And so the master instructor was an appointment rather than a certification. Right. And what that meant was that Ken also thought that they were qualified, not just you know, teaching material, but to administer the certification exams. Right. So yeah, there's there's two there's two level there, and actually there is two. This is the certification is not currently available, but we are planning to to get this back up and going. Hopefully, sometime. Within the next so year. when when you say we, because I it's interesting. I'm I'm thinking of you almost like uh, uh, like Leonard Peikoff being the intellectual heir of Ayn Rand. I understand that now you, you if I, my perception is that Ken is looking at having you sort of own the intellectual content or whatever, is that wording not accurate or pretty close? That, that is accurate. We have discussed this and um, yeah, if something were to happen with Ken and uh, his wife, Brenda, then the intellectual property goes to me. I've got, I don't, we don't have anything notarized that he wrote something up, he signed it. He's mentioned this in, in some videos that we've done. Uh, but yeah, if that happens, and also um, I am currently, I am now responsible for the super flow and super statics certifications. Um, I am just not set up to be able to 
conduct the exams yet. I need to make arrangements with a facility uh, that will allow me to do this on a regular basis that also has the necessary equipment. Um, I've got gym full of hammer strength machines here, but there are some things that I would like to have that would be beneficial specifically for uh, the certification. And also it's, I mean, this is my home gym. It's not really very professional to have people coming in, coming into my house uh, to do it as opposed to having a dedicated facility. So then there's, there's a bunch of logistics, things that we need to work out because quite frankly, um, if you're going to have people do the certification, it's got to be in person. Uh, there's, there's three parts to the certification. There is a written exam and the written exam could be done anywhere. There are, I would not do it online. Too many, too many problems with that. Um, I would have a company there and there's companies all over that do testing. Um, so the written exam would need to be done through some sort of a proctor, but the oral exam needs to be in person. You don't want to do that on the internet either. Cause you can have somebody right off camera coaching. You could have somebody that's got, I've got a billboard uh, or a bulletin board sitting above my monitor here with notes on stuff that I need to do projects that I need to complete all my, um, for all, you know, I could have a bunch of notes up here on, if I forget this, I need to make it, you don't know if I'm testing somebody, if they have it all written down. So yeah, you, the, you have multiple screens on your computer. Oh yeah. I've got the, I always have multiple windows open at the same time because I'm going back and forth between uh, things that I'm writing references and whatnot. So you have no idea. So the written exam can be done with a proctor. Uh, there's companies that they'll, they'll check, they'll verify that the person is who they say they are, they'll make sure that nobody's cheating. But the oral exam, which is necessary because sometimes uh, there, there are things that people need to understand well enough that they can't explain that they don't, they shouldn't be able to go back and, and, and look at notes to have to do that. Uh, that has to be done in person. And then the practical exam, uh, they have to be able to demonstrate that they are able to instruct the exercises. And also this includes not just being able to teach, okay, this is how you do this, but to be able to detect and correct discrepancies with somebody's form. If I am putting somebody through a practical exam, I will do things wrong on purpose to see if they catch it and correct it. They need right. to be able to recognize that's wrong and know how to correct these things. And you don't really get that with uh, video. I know there's all, it's, it's easier, it's less expensive. You don't have to travel somewhere and do the hotel and everything else. But unfortunately, if you want to do it right, it's it's really it is necessary that people do the oral and practical exams in person. Do you envision um, a separate superstatics and super slow certification, or a combination of the two, or one at and as opposed to? I would have to ask you because uh, I. Quite frankly, I don't think that they would need to be separated because they are based on the same general principles. It would uh, there would be additional material to cover in the uh, practical, uh, 
the preliminary considerations, the safety considerations that you have to teach any person before you even take them anywhere near exercise equipment are the same whether you're doing dynamics or statics. So a lot of a lot of the principles would be easy to cover in the same written exam and the same oral exam, but with the practical exam, it's going to be a, a little bit uh, more material. This, this is something that I would need to discuss with Ken and see how he wants to do this. But um, um, if it were up to me, I would combine the two. It would just be, it would just mean a little bit more time would be spent performing the practical exam. So speaking of, of that, I know that I, I use time static contraction uh, for certain exercises that I just think are more conducive to that style. Also with clients sometimes where uh, because of certain bodily restrictions they may have, previous injuries or whatnot. Um, but then I, I remember reading, I think it was on the hit list, I, I want to say Ryan uh, Hall, uh, I think had said one time that, that cited studies that he felt dynamic exercise was more effective than statics, although statics was another tool in that. Um, what, what to you are pros and cons of dynamic versus static, or is it even necessary to be in one camp or the other? Just think of it as different tools in the toolbox. First, it's important to point out that there aren't any studies that are using timed static contraction protocol. Most of the studies comparing dynamic exercise and static exercise are using traditional isometric protocols, which are very poor for, for exercise in general. So there's, there's a big difference between what most people do. And traditional isometric protocols often involve very brief max efforts, uh, maybe five, 10 seconds that were performed in reps. You'd contract as hard as you could, five to 10 seconds, you'd rest for a certain number of seconds and repeat, as opposed to performing a continuous sustained contraction for you know, 60 to 90 seconds or longer. So there's a big difference between those. So a lot of the results that they're pricing with traditional statics are not going, and, and the safety too is an issue with that. They're not gonna compare to what you would have with the time static contraction where the inroad is going to be far more efficient. Right. So there's a, a, a lot of problems with research. That could be a whole nother. There are so many problems with the way so many studies are designed and with how they claim to be testing strength and other things that uh, it's, you've got to be really skeptical of a lot of the conclusions that they're drawing from, from what they're doing. The research isn't worthless, but you have to consider the conclusions with all of the flaws in the methodology and the testing in mind. But um, with statics and dynamics in the long run, I don't think there's any significant difference in the strength and size that anybody's going to gain from doing one or the other. Um, you could probably get just as strong doing statics if they're done correctly as you can doing dynamics. Something else that's extremely important for people to keep in mind is that you can only get so big and so strong, no matter what you do. Uh, it doesn't matter what protocol you use. Your genetics dictate the limits to your strength and size. 
And anything that is effective, anything that, even if it's not optimal, if it is effective, if you are improving on it, eventually you're going to get to the limit. Over a long enough period of time, any method that is effective, even if it's less effective, is going to get you to the same place. The biggest differences in different exercise protocols are not the end result, but how long it takes you to get there, how safe they are, and how time efficient they are. Some protocols are going to get you there more quickly. They're going to do so without unnecessarily beating up your joints and spine and possibly crippling you in the long run and without wasting a ton of your time. Uh, now, there are pros and cons to each of them. If, if we are looking at overall functional ability and not just muscular strength and size increases, dynamics are going to be more advantageous for flexibility. But that's, that's pretty much the only major advantage. And even that is not as big of a deal for somebody who is somewhat active, uh, who is regularly moving through relatively full range of motion with most of their joints on a regular basis anyways, compared to somebody who's a little bit more sedentary. Um, if somebody is relatively sedentary and if they are only performing statics for most of the muscle groups, then they might benefit from some supplemental stretching. But that that's about it. Um, there are some practical considerations too. With time static contraction, if you don't have computer feedback, then you don't know how much force you're producing for how long. It makes it difficult, <coughs> excuse me, on a short-term basis to be able to evaluate progress. And something else that a lot of people don't seem to understand is that although the principles are universal, they apply the same to every single person, you, me, any, everybody listening, the exact same principles apply to all of us, but we vary in how much exercise we can handle within some time frame, within a single workout, within a week, within a month, and how long it takes our bodies to recover from and produce the adaptations stimulated by exercise. And so some people are going to do better with less exercise than others, less often than others, but you can't determine this unless you are evaluating progress. And then if you think a change needs to be made, you make the change and then you evaluate progress to see if there's a difference. If the change was an improvement over what you were doing, then you will see better progress. If it was not an improvement, there's gonna be no change. If it was in the wrong direction, you're gonna see regression. Without some means of measuring performance, it's going to take you a lot longer to do this. Now, you can do nothing but time static contraction and you're going to notice if it's working or not, uh, because if it is, you're going to get bigger and stronger. You are going to feel the difference in how easy it is for you to perform all of your daily activities and your recreational activities and everything else, but it may take less or more time to notice those differences than it would to see the differences if you're able to measure performance and, and chart it. Uh, so without computer feedback, that is, that is a, a significant downside. Uh, the answer to this would be to periodically perform 
a dynamic exercise in place of the, the static exercise, if it's safe to do so. Um, or, and, and I'm hesitant to recommend this because a lot of people do it terribly, um, perform a static hold for time instead. The static hold, that's a, that's a whole, here's my, my biggest concern with the static hold is that usually you're going to perform it in the mid-range position if you're doing a compound uh, pushing or pulling exercise um, or at the mid-range or end point depending on the equipment used if you're, you're performing a simple exercise. And often because your static strength is higher than your positive strength, even though it's also lower than your negative strength, you'd think it would average out. But people require a little bit heavier weight to be able to achieve failure statically than they do positively. So you need a heavier weight for some amount of time. Um, I would prefer that if people perform static exercises, they do it with equipment that allows them to only lift the weight maybe a centimeter or two, maybe a you know half an inch to an inch, and then just hold it there. One, they don't have to lift it as far. Two, when they start to fail, they only have to lower it a very short distance instead of performing an entire uh, negative. It's not always practical. Um, there are some ways that you can perform some static exercises with uh, minimal equipment um, or equipment that's not specifically designed for it by incorporating strain gauges or load cells. Um, if you've got a machine, um, if you have a strain gauge or a load cell, you can usually figure out a way to connect it to the frame and connect it to the movement arm to be able to perform statics. If you have a fused movement arm, not independent movement arms. Right. Um, so there's, there are some ways to work around this, but that is probably the biggest disadvantage of statics. It's not that it's not effective. In fact, it's surprisingly effective. It's that it is, it's just the measurement. Um, I have had so many people email me, send me messages um, over the past, it's been about a decade now uh, since I wrote a book on how to perform time static contraction with just you know, straps and common household objects. And so many people have, have emailed saying, you know, they've done this and were surprised at how much stronger they got, even noticeable you know, size increases. And even I had somebody who uh, was performing regular barbell squats. They were doing it dynamically and had to stop for a while due to some lower back and hip issues. And to be able to continue to perform the exercise, they switched to performing a timed static contraction belt squat. And after, I think it was about three months, they switched, they were able to resume performing a barbell squat and they expected that they were going to have lost strength on this. But in, in, and you would have expected not a strength loss, but a performance decrease due to the lack of practice, uh, which is another thing a lot of people don't understand. Uh, strength is not your ability to perform an exercise. It is how much force your muscles can produce. Your ability to perform an exercise is a combination of your strength and your skill in the exercise. This is right. one of the reasons one rep max testing is a silly uh, way to, to test strength for most uh, research. They should be doing static testing instead. 
after three months of just time static contractions, not doing any dynamic uh, squats, when they resumed performing dynamic barbell squats, they were able to do more repetition with the same weight that they left off with. And then after that, were able to increase the weight. Uh, despite no practice, they increased their strength significantly during that time. And uh, also, and I should point out, a lot of people have this idea that if they perform statics, it's only going to cause them to get stronger at the uh, position that they're training or within a certain number of degrees of it. And this is also not the case. Um, it, if you are contracting a muscle, regardless of the length of the muscle, if you fatigue it deeply enough, you are going to recruit and stimulate increases in the strength size of all of the fibers in that muscle. And you are not only going to be limited in how much force you can produce in specific positions. It makes no sense <laughs> to occur. Now, if you are performing some compound exercises from position to position over the range of motion, there is going to be a difference in the relative contribution of different muscles. And if you perform a compound exercise in one position, some muscles might be worked harder than in other positions. Right. But unless the only exercise you do is that one, and you don't also include exercises for the other muscle groups, this is not going to be a limiting factor. And what you would expect if a person only increased strength in the position trained would that be if they returned to performing dynamic exercises, the further they got away from that position, that portion of the range of motion, the weaker you would expect them to get, and the more likely they would be to fail in those positions further from it. But that's not what we see. Um, one of the indicators that a machine has a well-balanced resistance curve is that momentary muscle failure will occur randomly throughout the range of motion. If momentary muscle failure almost always occurs in a single position, that tells you that the cam is off, that the resistance is too high relative to the strength curve in that position. You have a sticking point. But if failure occurs randomly, then it indicates that the cam profile, the resistance curve is, is correct for the machine. And if a person's strength curve were to change, based on, you know, because of specific, uh, specific strength gains in the position uh, trained with statics, then you would expect them to never fail in that portion of the range of motion or that position and to be more likely to fail further away from it, but we don't see that. In clients uh, that we had doing statics, if we were to occasionally perform a dynamic exercise with them, they would still tend to fail you know, in different, there'd be random positions throughout the range of motion. My so experience, uh, you know, time static contraction is hard. And uh, I remember, particularly, I still have some Zoom clients now, but particularly during the pandemic, I was training a lot of people on Zoom because I typically will, in my workout, will throw in a, a time static uh, exercise here and there with most of the being dynamic and then one day i was kind of self-conscious because i'm watching people on screen they're doing time statics for the most part on zoom i use time static a lot more and and i thought to myself geez are they working hard enough is this 
easier than using machines and whatnot. So one day I got this bright idea that I said to a client, I says, I'm going to do them with you. So as we're doing, we'll do them together. And we were going to do about eight exercises. About by the third or fourth one, I thought, man, this was a dumb idea. Because I was thinking, this is freaking hard. Like I couldn't, you know, it's really like the 30 seconds at the end of, you know, a maximum as hard as you dare. And, and doing that for six, seven, eight exercises. And then I thought, okay, these people are getting their money's worth. I don't have to worry. This is a freaking hard workout. I think it's actually harder because when I'm doing a dynamic exercise, I'm only doing a maximum exertion for a few seconds on the last rep. Whereas when I'm doing a time static contraction and I, I don't go, you know, from the second stage to the third stage, I don't immediately jump. But you know, there's at least 20 seconds of that 30 where I'm doing all I got. It is extremely hard when it is done correctly. Uh, this, that, that's my only concern, though, is that people are doing it correctly. This is one other downside. When we teach somebody to perform a time static contraction, we are teaching them to gradually ramp up their effort over a few seconds until they're contracting moderately hard. After 30 seconds, they gradually ramp up and contract almost as hard as they can. And then after another 30 seconds, they ramp up over a few seconds and then contract as hard as they dare, as hard as they believe that they are able to safely contract. And then after another 30 seconds, they gradually de-ramp or they ease off. The problem with this is, what is moderate? What is as hard as you can contract? Unless a person has some experience performing dynamic exercises and actually going to momentary muscle failure, it's hard for them to know that. So it's, I think it's something that people will get better at over time if they are performing just statics. But I think that it might take them a little longer to figure it out compared with somebody who is already actually trained to momentary muscle. And, and sometimes it's hard to read people because some people are naturally stoic and they don't look like they're working hard, but they are. And other people are, you know, the world's coming to an end and, <laughs> and, and, and they're not necessarily working that hard. Right. So, and it's a bit of an honor, honor system, if you will, because they could, they could tell you they're working hard and not be. I mean, after a while, you get a bit what choices of words. Like one of the things that you and Ken often talk about is the choice of words when you're instructing is so important. One of the things that I've said is I explain to people, think of it as at the end, it should be a fight or flight kind of situation, like a life or death thing. But remember that in a fight or flight situation, you would you would be working as hard as you could, but you'd retain your composure. You don't want to be panicking. So you want to maintain your composure uh, while which sounds, you know, um, it sounds like it's 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 an opposite. Right. I want you to work as hard as you can and stay calm and composed at the same time. But, you know, which brings me, you know, to that moving meditation that you've talked about. Takes practice. It takes practice. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. So um, on that, one of the posters, as I was saying to you before, I think I, I think this was before we started recording, 
I have a poster. One of my clients is a printer. So I have various posters in here, Ken's definition of an exercise and various ones. And one of the ones I have is, I think, an excerpt from an article that, that you wrote. It was on the hit list about moving meditation. Exercise should be like moving meditation. And you go into the whole get set and, you know, the whole bit and type of thing. So maybe explain for people when you talk about getting good at it, how exercise can compare to meditation? Oh boy. Well, there are different types of meditation, but a popular type of meditation involves focusing on a particular object or, or sound or sensation and trying to direct all of your focus to that thing so that you are not thinking of or, or letting your attention wander to other things. And in a way, this actually helps to, in the same way that exercise will strengthen a muscle, meditation will strengthen your focus. It will improve your ability to direct your attention to a particular thing and not be distracted. Well, first, oh boy, before we talk about you know, how this helps with exercise. It's important to understand what it means to be better at an exercise. A lot of people confuse being better at exercise, which means being better at efficiently loading and inroading the target muscles to stimulate your body to make them stronger with being better at the assumed but incorrect objective of making the weights go up and down. The real objective of exercise, the correct objective of exercise is not to lift some amount of weight some amount of times. That is a means to an end. It is that what are we trying to do with exercise? We're trying to stimulate the body to get stronger. We are trying to improve the function of our bodies. We're not trying to demonstrate the capabilities of our bodies by making the weights go up and down. If a person is focusing on the correct objective of positioning their body and moving in a way that efficiently loads and deeply fatigues the target muscles, they are going to do the exercise very differently than if they're focused on the incorrect objective of making the weight go up and down. When a person is focused on the wrong objective, when they are just trying to get the rep, they will tend to do all sorts of things that are the opposite of what they want. Instead of trying to make the exercise more demanding to more efficiently fatigue the target muscles, they are going to try to do things to make it easier for them to lift the weight. And these things are often also increasing their risk of injury. When you see people yanking at the weight, heaving at the weight, trying to swing the weight up instead of lifting it under control, um, when they drop the weight instead of lowering it under control, when they're shifting their body to reduce the lever that they're working against, uh, when they speed up, through the harder parts of the range of motion, but they slow down or even worse, they stop to rest when the muscles aren't meaningfully loaded. Watch people perform a barbell squat or a leg press. You want to avoid the last 15 to 20 degrees of knee extension completely. 
because the target muscles are not meaningfully loaded there. You're not accomplishing the real objective of exercise of efficiently loading, fatiguing those muscles. If you are spending a lot of time in portions of the range of motion where they're not meaningfully loaded. So, but you get people, if they're just thinking about getting the repetition, they're going to lock out and maybe even stop there and, and take a few breaths. They're focusing on the wrong thing, how much they can lift uh, or how many times they can lift it. It is an external focus. They're thinking about what they are doing to the barbell or the dumbbells or the machine instead of thinking about how they're using the tool to create and maintain relatively consistent, well-balanced tension in the target muscles. So the first thing to understand is what we're trying to accomplish. Forget about how much weight you can lift and how many times and all this other stuff. It's not about, in fact, the better you are at an exercise, the less weight you require to achieve momentary muscle failure within some time frame. The better your form, the less weight you need because you are using the weight in a way that is more effective. Um, in fact, most people have form that is so awful that if they were forced to perform an exercise with even halfway decent form, they would have to use less than half as much weight as they usually do. Most, most people, and when I say most people, I also include the vast majority of HIIT instructors that I see posting their, their uh, workouts and then clients' workouts online. So to know what you should be focusing on, you have to understand what we're really trying to accomplish. Again, we're not trying to make weights go up and down. We're trying to use the weight to efficiently and deeply fatigue the target muscle with minimal risk of injury. So when you are doing an exercise, you need to be focusing on what you are feeling in the target muscles, as well as in the other body parts that are affected. And you also need to make sure you're doing this without injuring yourself. So you need to keep your head and neck still to minimize the risk of injury to the neck. You need to breathe freely without Volsalva maneuver or even a partial Volsalva maneuver, like what happens when somebody is grunting or groaning or yelling. If you hear somebody go, they're not breathing properly if they're doing that. If they breathe properly, they can't do that. So you're focusing on what you're feeling in the target muscles and the involved joints and other body parts that are working to maintain proper position. Focusing on keeping the head and neck still, the face relaxed, on breathing properly, keeping the hands relaxed. There are a lot of things that you need to focus on. Notice I didn't say anything about making the weights go up and down. You're not focusing on lifting the weight. When you perform an exercise, you need to turn your attention inwards towards what's happening in your body, what you're doing with your body. On initiating the, the movement, if you are performing a dynamic exercise in a very gradual and controlled manner, you never just go. I see a lot of people when they start an exercise, they just push, they just pull, they just start. You never just go, you barely apply any force. And then you very gradually increase the force you're applying until the weight just barely begins to move. And then you gradually accelerate and then continue moving relatively slowly. And the entire time you're doing this, you need to be focused on, aware of all of these sensations in your body so that you are able to make adjustments if necessary 
to make sure that you keep the target muscles under tension, that you avoid doing things that make the exercise easier. If anything makes it feel easier, it's, it's wrong. You don't want to give your muscles a break. Uh, rest pause is a good example of this. Rest pause is a completely backwards approach to exercise. Uh, because it goes, it, it makes the erroneous assumption that the benefit is in using a heavier weight and having higher absolute force rather than efficiently loading and eroding the target muscles. It's a completely backwards approach. It is people trying to lift more weight, which is not beneficial. It's not about how much weight that you lift. It's not about the absolute load. It's about the relative effort. As you are performing an exercise, because of all of the things that you need to be focusing on and how much you need to be focused, how carefully you need to be focusing on them to be able to do this as well as possible, it becomes almost like a meditative activity because of the degree of focus required. Um, when you perform an exercise, you want to do so in a a focused in a mindful manner. You want to have your attention on what is happening in your body from the very beginning to the very end, from the moment you begin to apply force to the moment that you have completely de-ramped or eased off. You want to be entirely focused on the sensations and the target muscles, how you are moving your body Again, your breathing, your head and neck stabilization, all these other things. What you don't want to be doing is just concentrating on making a weight go up and down or, or worse, mindlessly heaving, throwing, swinging, and then dropping and bouncing the weight without paying attention to any of these things, which is what you usually see. A lot of people are focused on the exact opposite thing that they should. You see people doing... Uh, again, say a leg press, and they're trying to make the footboard move or they're trying to make the seat move. They're thinking about making the machine go instead of focusing on the contraction of the target movement or target muscles and performing the correct body movement. Um, and I like how, how Ken Hutchins puts this. When you're performing an exercise, you focus on that, the contraction of the target muscles and performing the proper body movements, the machine just goes along for the ride. It is just there. Your goal is not to make the machine move, to make a barbell go up and down. It is there to provide resistance to a specific body movement. The focus needs to be on performing the correct body movement. And this is also a huge mistake that a lot of instructors make in the way that they are teaching and in the way that they are instructing, which I, I distinguish, teaching is imparting information to somebody about principles, about how to do a thing. Instructing is guiding them in the performance of doing the thing. Uh, so you teach a person how to perform a leg press, and then you instruct them in performing the leg press, for example. And in their teaching and in their instruction, they often use language that has the person thinking about the wrong thing, focusing on making the handles go, making the footboard go, making the seat move, 
And they're talking about, come on, get, you can do another rep or this. They're, they're focused on the completion of the repetition rather than encouraging them to focus on the contraction of the target muscles. You know, one of the, th one of the things that, that you pointed out, and it just occurs to me, <clears throat> you know, you said that even the form of many hit trainers that you see on, on video, and, and even the term hit, which I know that you, you struggle with it, even though you have a, a board called the hit list. Yes. And, you know, I was just thinking, you know, efficient inroad training, what might be a better word, because even the word intensity, when you think about intensity, and we know that the correct one has nothing to do with percentage of RM, one RM, but, but rather the level of effort. But even when you're just trying to increase effort, there are many ways to increase effort that I would suggest based on what I'm understanding, what you're explaining to me, that don't have anything to do with the true objective of exercise. You can increase intensity using rest pause. You can increase it by just putting more weight on the bar. Rest pause doesn't increase intensity though. Rest pause actually reduces intensity. So the intensity is best thought of in, in terms of inroad over time. Instead of thinking of the momentary effort, think of the effort over a period of time. So suppose that we want to achieve momentary muscle failure in a minute. If you have a muscle continuously loaded for an entire minute, you are going to inroad it more deeply than if you have a heavier weight that is used for maybe 10 seconds and then you rest for 10 seconds and then 10 seconds, you rest for 10 seconds. Um, consider that if you use rest pause, the reason people do rest pause is because they think that it's heavier is better. And it's not. It really doesn't make any difference. A heavier weight or a lower weight, as long as you're going to momentary muscle failure, you are going to stimulate similar improvements, as long as the time is not too short or too, too long. But with rest pause, if you have a heavier weight, when you have achieved momentary muscle failure, you have not inroaded as deeply. You lift a weight, you lower it. Let's say for rest pause, you use 90% of your one rep maximum. And let's say for a continuous set to failure, you use, I don't know, let's say 60% if you're actually using a really strict form. Let's say we lift the weight and lower it. Your strength is going to decrease a little bit. And then if you stop to rest, you're going to recover some. Then you do another rep, it decreases maybe a little bit more because you're not going to recover all your strength. And then you rest and you recover a little bit. And you keep doing this until you fail. And with 90%, you've failed when you've reduced your strength from 100 to 90. You've got a 10% inroad. If you use 60 and there's no rest and the fatigue is just continuous, there's no time to recover there. When you achieve momentary muscle failure, you will have a 40% inroad. The muscles will have been fatigued much more deeply in that time. Now, at the end, the percent effort might still be similar relative to your strength at that moment, but you will have produced a lot more fatigue. You will have inroaded the strength of the muscles far more deeply in that time. 40% inroad versus 10% inroad. So if we look at inroad per time, the average effort over the course of that minute is going to be higher. So is you that why uh, a, longer to you, a longer time under load with a lighter weight, is that why 
there's a point of diminishing returns because the inroad is too great. Because technically, to use a silly example, if I was using 20% of my 1RM and I just kept going until you, I got another one, I'd have an 80% inroad. If you have too little resistance, then when, when you are contracting a muscle, your body is going to recruit just enough motor units to provide the amount of force required to perform the movement the way that you want to perform the movement. Right. If you have enough motor units recruited at one time and then fatigued, then as some fatigue, other motor units need to be recruited. And this process repeats until you have recruited all the motor units in the target muscles, assuming that it happens over a short enough period of time. If you are using enough weight, even if it's just moderate, even if you're achieving momentary muscle failure within like one to two minutes or may, maybe up to three minutes or so, once it starts getting way out past that, it's probably it's too long. You will not have allowed any of the motor units to recover enough that they are completely rested and then you just keep cycling through them. By the time the last motor units that you are able to recruit have been recruited and deeply fatigued, the first ones haven't been able to recover enough that you can cycle back to those. But think about something like jogging. If you're jogging, you're using your muscles. You're using a lot of muscles in the body, mostly hip and thigh muscles, but there's also upper body movement involved in maintaining balance. But as you are jogging, you are not really using any of the muscles in a way that is efficiently fatiguing them. Um, so some motor units are recruited and they're going to fatigue. And then as they fatigue, other motor units are going to be recruited. But it takes so long because there's so little resistance that by the time you get through a lot of them, you just end up recycling some of the other ones. The other ones have recovered enough, they're brought back in. And you don't end up really, maybe not even getting to the higher threshold uh, motor units. It's just, it's not, this is part of what we mean when we say efficient muscular loading. If the weight is too low, if the resistance is too low, then it's going to take a long time. And we've got two problems there. One is if it takes a really long time, you are imposing a lot more stress on the body than you need. Um, and up to a point, you're going to stimulate your body to produce the desired adaptations. But beyond some point, any more work than is necessary to do that is creating stress on the body that it has to devote energy and resources to coping with and recovering from. And that takes away from what your body has to be able to produce the desired adaptations. We want to achieve a relatively deep amount of fatigue within a certain amount of time, but we don't want to do any more work or place any more stress on the body than necessary to do this. And we also don't want to have any more risk of injury than necessary, which is why we don't want to use weights that are very heavy. When I think about time under load for different individuals, I think of two things. Uh, among two, two of the things that I think about are age, right, older joints, and the second one is degree of motor control. So when I've seen some of your videos where you've demonstrated, I can see that you can use the weight <clears throat> where you'll reach failure in like 50 seconds, 55 seconds, but you have really great motor control. 
Whereas some people, if I give them the type of weight, let's forget age for a second, <coughs> excuse me, that would have them fail in 50 seconds, their motor control would not be able to handle that weight properly for the first couple of reps. And they, they, their form would deteriorate from the beginning. So I'll use a longer one so they can sort of do a couple of easier reps and then reach failure maybe somewhere between a minute and a half, two and a half. And if the person is 74 years old and maybe already has some issues from either previous sports or activities or just life, then, you know, I try not to go over three minutes, but I must admit that with some of these people, three minutes is, is a, what, I, what I work with a lot of the time. Like well, with, with almost everything, it's, it's going, there's going to be some variation between individuals. Um, with motor control, we see some people who just have a lot of difficulty performing movements correctly. They just don't have very good motor control. And you have other people who have incredible motor control, and they are able to perform uh, with very little instruction, they're able to do things very, very well with, or I should say with very little practice. They just, they're naturals. <clears throat> Usually if a person has very poor motor control, um, we have them just perform time static contraction instead because it is easier for them to do. It's still, you know, there may be some issues with uh, steady application of force, but it is less dangerous for somebody with poor motor control to perform a static exercise than a uh, dynamic exercise. With the rep range though, there's neurological efficiency, there's uh, muscle fiber type. Again, going back to inroad, uh, suppose that you have somebody that has a higher percentage of fast twitch fibers uh, versus low twitch fibers, they may fatigue more quickly uh, with a certain level of effort than somebody else. If that's the case, then it might not take them as long to achieve, say, a 30 or 40. And, and I'm not attaching any importance to the specific numbers, just for the sake of example. Um, they may take less time to achieve a certain amount of inroad. In that case, if you have them attempt to perform a longer time, the inroading for them might be too severe. They're way beyond the point that's necessary to stimulate the desired improvements and more likely to, to be overtrained. On the other hand, you might have some people who are very fatigue resistant. They just, they can't produce as much force. Maybe their body isn't recruiting as many motor units at a time and the slower twitch motor units tend to be comprised of smaller fibers. <laughs> and they, they just fatigue very slowly. For somebody like that, if you stop them at a point that might be appropriate for an average person, they haven't inroaded deeply enough. It takes them longer, so they need more time to be able to get to, to where they want or, or where they where ideally should be. Again, it's, it's still going to be effective as long as you have some inroad. It might just not be optimal for some people. And you will typically see this in patterns on their – and this is another reason that I – I, I like to still use a dynamic exercise, at least for, for some things, because it can indicate whether a person might respond better to shorter or longer times. Like almost everything else, if you were to be able to map this out, about 60% of the people would be right in the middle and they would do well 
somewhere in about the one to two minute range being really conservative. Again, I usually tell people for most exercises, start with a, a, a resistance that allows you to achieve momentary muscle failure within about 60 to 90 seconds, and then adjust from there. If you've got somebody that you are concerned with their safety, maybe air a little bit higher, uh, maybe two minutes or so before increasing the resistance. But there are going to be some people who will respond better to longer times. And some of this might just be because they have well, poor motor control, poor ability to efficiently load. If they are not able to do this as well, if they are not able to contract their muscles as intensely, if they have a lot more slow twitch fibers and very low neurological efficiency, it might take them longer just to achieve that much inroad. Whereas if you have somebody with exceptional motor control and possibly also a higher percentage of fast twitch fibers, so they are fatiguing more rapidly, they may be able to accomplish in a minute what it takes some other people two to three minutes to do. And this is not to say that everybody should just try to achieve momentary muscle failure in a minute or less, but, and, and, and most people are not alpha subjects. Everybody likes to believe that they're above average. I have been doing this for, let's well, since 94. So about three decades now, both with individual one-on-one -on -one instruction and consulting, I've trained hundreds of people. And I've had people from all over the country uh, and from outside the country come to Orlando, some of whom have been doing this stuff for a while, some of whom are even trainers and teaching this stuff. <coughs> and I can count on one hand the number of people out of hundreds and hundreds, including longtime HIT trainees that I've trained that I would consider to be alpha subjects or exceptional who have the ability to just to do this so well that it, it's, it's almost frightening for somebody to watch if they do not understand what it is that they are seeing the person doing. And, and a few of these really stand out. There was a guy named Corey that I trained when I was up in Green Bay. And the intensity, um, the his, his ability to focus and just perform the movement so well with, I mean, weights that most people would not be able to budge was impressive. And I also, and Ken Hutchins also trained, both Ken Hutchins and I have trained Mark Merrow, who I don't know if you follow professional wrestling. Um, maybe some of, some of your listeners do. You might remember from the uh, WWE, the, uh, the pro wrestler, he was Johnny B. Bad for a while, and later he was the, the marvelous Mark Merrow. Um, Mark is an absolute freak of nature when it comes to strength relative to body size and his ability to focus. It was just, it was something. I mean, you had to have seen it to be able to appreciate it. He was like a machine. You put them on an exercise, or you instruct them the exercise, you put them on a piece of equipment, and you tell him what to do and how to do it. And it was, he was just like a machine. Every repetition, uh, the control, the focus was tremendous. And when he got to the point of momentary muscle failure, he wasn't doing all this clownish, histrionics or 
moving his head and neck around and groaning. No. Face relaxed, looking just straight ahead, completely stoic. But you could see the machine would be vibrating or the muscles involved would be contracted, like his thighs and leg extension. Like you could just see the muscles vibrating under the skin, but he'd be breathing heavier, but just impassive. No change in expression. Everything was just on the contraction. And it was, it was just something. And I had one other guy that I trained that was like this. And he was a former Navy SEAL, uh, DevGru, I think they, they call it now. And it was in, in most people, most people, when you train them, it takes a lot to get them to the point where they're going to actual momentary muscle failure. A lot of people, including a lot of hip people, are fooling themselves. Um, they think they're going to momentary muscle failure, but they stop when it gets too hard for them to maintain some pace. If you actually go to momentary muscle failure, what you'll find is the closer you get to achieving failure, the slower and slower you move during the positive <clears throat> because of what's called the force velocity curve. Um, if people want a lot more detailed explanation of this, there's a whole video just on this in, in the hit list. But you see a lot of people and they're, they're lifting, lowering, lifting, lowering at some pace, and then suddenly they just stop. If they stop and they, they aren't just barely moving during the last rep or two, they haven't achieved momentary muscle failure. They just quit. When somebody actually works to momentary muscle failure, you'll see their speed just get slower and slower until that last rep is just a grind. Now, this is more obvious to be fair, this is more obvious on exercise equipment with well-balanced resistance curves. If a machine is really poorly designed and has a sticking point, then a person who might have otherwise been able to grind out one or two more repetitions might just not be able to get over that sticking point because of how bad the machine is. But you see people just stop like that on a lot of exercises. Anyways, these people, instead of having to really push them and, and having to take a while to get them to the point of momentary muscle failure, um, this, this one guy that I, again, the, the Navy SEAL guy, um, he would get to a point where it was obvious that he was at or very close to momentary muscle failure and the weight was just barely moving and he just kept on it and just would not give up. He was, you, it might take him 20 something seconds or more to complete a repetition. And then he would lower the weight and he wouldn't stop. He would just go right into the next and continue to contract. And sometimes he would keep contracting and the weight was not moving and he would not stop. He just kept contracting anyways. And instead of trying to encourage him to get to that point, like most people, I would have to emphatically tell him to stop. Okay, you can stop. You can stop. All right, that's it. That's enough. Stop. We're going to go to the next exercise. The other, was, caveat, the other caveat, too, for a lot of people is before they get to that point, the form will start to deteriorate. So what, I, what I'll do is as soon as the form, I, I say if you, if, if you like if they did a rep, 
I know they could do another one, but the last one started to get sloppy. I'll start. I'll stop the set and I'll say, okay, yeah. you, your form was deteriorating. Yeah, you don't want to let people's form get sloppy. But this is also the thing about these guys is the last rep, other than being slower, which is to be expected if you're actually going through momentary muscle failure, that they just, they were like machines. They just, the, every repetition looked like the last. And, and again, this is really a big part of what I talked about earlier with the real, the correct objective versus the incorrect objective. Most people's form breaks because they're either trying to avoid discomfort or because they're thinking about the incorrect objective. They're, they break form to make the exercise easier because they're thinking about trying to complete the rep rather than on using the resistance to deeply fatigue the target muscles. If you are focusing on, and I can't remember, I, I want to give credit, I can't remember, I want to say it was Al Coleman. I think that the first person that I, it was either Al Coleman or Josh Trentini, it might have been Al Coleman instructing Josh. Um, I visited them up at Renex in Ohio a while back and was able to, to hang out with them there for a while. I think it was Al Coleman that uh, used the phrase empty out the muscle. And I think this is, I mean, it's, it's not <laughs> technically accurate, but sometimes you have these phrases that uh, provide a visual that right. is helpful. When a person is performing an exercise, I think it helps to think about that. You're, you're not trying to make the weights go up and down. The weight is there to provide resistance for the muscles to contract against so that you can inroad them. And if you think about inroading, which is just a way of saying of fatiguing the target muscles, you're trying to empty them out. You're trying to another, empty up strength, so to speak. Another cool Al Coleman, I saw an article that he wrote and called Hanging from a Thread. And that's another visual that he uses. He, says he instructs clients pretend that the weight that you're lifting is hanging from a thread in other words if you were lifting something and if you knew that it was any sudden movement on the way up any you know heaving or anything or any dropping on the way down that the thread would break how that would, is great that is would, a great visual yeah how would you lift if you knew that you were lifting something that was hanging from a thread you would lift it super carefully knowing that right and i i that's a, a great one so i'm, I'm gonna have go to back second, go back for a second to muscle fibers one of the things that i've noticed not invariably but the vast majority of the time when i get new clients who have been long time steady state activity practitioners they often will tell me that they have strong legs because they cycle or they run or whatever it is my experience not invariably but most of the time they are not just weak in those body parts they are weaker than my people who come in who are completely untrained yeah they're chronically fatigued um well, my, my speculation, just to finish my thought, is that because they have not been recruiting their fast twitch fibers at all for years, 
the body has decided it doesn't need fast fibers and it's got very few of them which leads me to the idea of that adaptations can be positive or negative <clears throat> and makes me wonder also going back to the hypertrophy thing is if you're lifting properly might your body suddenly say i need more fast twitch fibers because of what we're doing slow twitch not as much and could you could you go the other way there is some evidence that there can be some conversion of fiber types in people um, but most of it that i've seen is a conversion from fast to slow twitch in and often in elderly people who do not strength train so it's been a while since I've read anything on this. I don't know if you can do that, but you can definitely not have increase in the size and strength of the fast twitch motor units if you are not doing something that recruits them and challenges them. But uh, with properly performed exercise, you are going to recruit and stimulate improvements in all of the motor units and the target muscles. Nothing is going to be, be left out. But uh, a lot of times if these people are doing these activities chronically they are actually weaker because of the overtraining now did you read the story that i shared from ken hutchins about uh, doug spratt dunking a basketball that rings a bell i may have maybe as you start to tell it i will now i'll, I'll give you the short version the full version is on the the, the hit list if, if people want to read it but um doug spratt uh, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He had, uh, I think it was like brain cancer or something. Um, Doug Spratt was actually the first person to receive the uh, super slow level one certification. And uh, Doug loved to play basketball. And he always wanted to dunk basketball. And he'd been talking with Tim Patterson about this. Tim Patterson actually used to work at Nautilus. He, uh, not sure exactly what he did there, but he did actually typeset the first super slow manual for, for Ken Hutchins. Um, and funny thing is, Tim Patterson owns a biotest in T-Nation right now, which, which if you're familiar with T-Nation, almost, <laughs> it, it's, it's like an over-the-top, almost a parody of, of bodybuilding magazines. It's ridiculous. Tim does super slow. Really? This is this is how he frames, but his magazine is it's completely different stuff. Anyways, Tim, and actually I had talked with them back like early 2004, 2005. I almost went to work for them, not for T Nation, but helping out with uh, with writing and stuff for L Darwin's uh, site, which is also under Biotest and T Nation. They, they run that for him. So he told Doug... You need to stop jogging. Doug has, you know, been doing hip at this time, but he was he was also jogging, and it was interfering with recovery and adaptation from the workout. So he stopped jogging, and after a few weeks, he was able to dunk a basketball. The jogging had been interfering, <coughs> excuse me, interfering with his strength gains. So there is a certain amount of activity that our bodies are able to tolerate to be able to recover from and adapt to within some time frame, And it depends on how hard and how long and how often, but um, some people just can't do a lot of other stuff like this without at the very least not getting stronger as quickly, but in some cases actually getting, getting weaker. Uh, I have worked with 
joggers in the past. I've worked with other people who've been involved in various endurance activities as hobbies. And they are almost always weaker. And a lot of them also tend to be less coordinated, uh, have poor motor control. And I don't know that this is the case. Uh, Ken Hutchins and I have discussed this thing. It might be people with less um, coordination, people that have relatively poor motor control who will not do as well uh, performing recreational or athletic activities that require more of it seem to be more attracted to activities that are, you know, simple locomotor activities, which don't require as much uh, motor control, as much agility, things like jogging, jogging or cycling. Um, you tend to see less coordinated, weaker people attracted to those uh, activities. Obviously there are some exceptions, but uh, it, it seems to, to draw uh, those more more so a lot of times you do get people and they think their legs are strong because they've been told that running is going to strengthen their legs and if somebody is completely sedentary and they start jogging or start running there will be a little bit of improvement initially but only a little bit and only initially beyond some point it's not progressive they're not going to stimulate, at least not in a way that's going to stimulate any meaningful, any noticeable increases in, in muscular strength and size. So often I'll tell people specifically if they're, because I don't tell people to run for any kind of exercise. Technically running is not exercise. Uh, the only activity that qualifies as exercise is activity is, that is specifically designed to meaningfully load muscles in accordance with muscle and joint function and is done for the purpose of deeply inroading them within a relatively short time frame. Um, Ken Hutchins' definition explains this in more detail, but exercise is a very specific activity designed for the purpose of stimulating increases in muscular strength and size and through that improvements in the other general trainable factors of uh, functional ability. Everything else is not exercise. Now, it doesn't mean that other activities don't provide physical benefits either to functional ability or, or general health, only that they do not qualify as exercise. They don't even come close to exercise in terms of the potential benefits they can provide or the safety. So I tell people they don't need to run, they don't need to cycle, they don't need to do any of these things for the sake of fat loss or cardiovascular improvements. In fact, they're almost a complete waste of time for fat loss. Um, but they do need to do them if they want to compete in these activities. Not because it's a very effective way to improve conditioning, but because it's absolutely necessary to improve their skill in those activities and an understanding of the appropriate pacing for the distances that they're competing at. And those things are necessary for energy economy. The more skilled you are at a particular activity, the more economical your movement, the less wasted movement, the less wasted energy and effort. And this allows you to do it longer or with a higher level of effort with less fatigue. Really? It's not that these are effective for conditioning, it's that they are necessary for the skill, which improves endurance. But I tell them that they have to keep these activities brief and infrequent as well, because they otherwise they come, become counterproductive. I've worked with a lot of people who are in law enforcement, um, in military, 
and some emergency services where they have to perform a physical fitness test yearly as part of their job. This usually includes a mile and a half run. <clears throat> and I tell pretty much everybody that they should not, because a lot of people think, oh, they're going to be tested on running. They, they need to start running regularly. And you see them running a few miles a day, most days of the week. And it's a complete waste of time. I usually tell them, take the distance that you're going to be tested at and just run that once a week, starting maybe just a, a few months out from when you're going to be tested. That's, that's enough. You don't need that for conditioning. Your exercise provides your conditioning, but you absolutely need to do it for skill, but you don't need to do it very long or very often. And to be able to determine the pacing you need to get the time that you want for how you want to test on this, you need to be running the distance that you're going to be tested. And if it's possible, you need to run the exact course where you know that you are going to be tested on this. And they typically perform phenomenally with it, despite other people doing a lot more running a lot more often. You don't need to do a lot of it. And if they did it more, more often, it's not going to improve their results. And it very well may reduce the results by compromising their ability to recover from and adapt to their workouts. And beating up their knees. And it's interesting. Oh, yeah. Knees, spine. The, yep. energy, the energy efficiency thing, which you cited, which is true, is also one of the reasons why it's such a poor method of actual conditioning because as you continue to run and get more energy efficient your body uses less effort to do the same thing you're getting less and less of the minor amount of benefit you were getting in the first place because yeah. you're even then you're not going to you're not going to make any significant difference to your daily energy expenditure now one these activities don't burn nearly as many calories as a lot of people believe they do. A lot of times when somebody says, oh, well, you, you burn so many calories per hour when you're running. Well, that usually includes resting energy expenditure, the amount of calories that they would have burned if they had sat around doing nothing. If a person is running for an hour, they're burning that many calories for the resting energy expenditure plus additional calories for the activity. If you subtract out what they would have burned for resting energy expenditure, it's, it's really not a lot. Right. We're, we're not that energy efficient, or I should, we, I should say we are very efficient. We are not so energy inefficient that we're going to burn hundreds and hundreds of calories an hour doing this stuff. Um, anybody that's claiming, oh, our cardio you know, kickboxing or our Zumba class or our boot camp it's going to cause you to burn, you know, seven, eight, hundred, nine, what, a thousand hour calories an hour, whatever. They're either lying or they're ignorant. You're not, you're not burning that many calories an hour as a result of doing these activities. But there's also an adjustment to our metabolic rate, and this is one of the reasons that. And that there's, there are some things that are wrong with burn, but this is one of the reasons that I would recommend everybody read it. It explains. You know, what they have found about how you're referring to the book Burned by Herman Ponser. Yeah, Burned by Herman Ponser talks about the research that they have done and using much more accurate methods than what exercise physiologists uh, typically use. And they found that the daily energy expenditure is very tightly constrained. Our body will adjust the amount of energy that it devotes to different processes, reducing 
the amount that's spent on some things if our activity increases so that it can keep our daily energy expenditure within a certain window. There's, you, you might have it go up or down a little bit in one direction or the other, but it really, you cannot make a significant difference in daily energy expenditure by increasing your activity. And one of the examples he gave in the book is they took a bunch of uh, sedentary, where there was a study where they took a bunch of sedentary people and had them start training to run a half marathon. And over a period of weeks, they gradually increased the miles that they ran weekly. And I can't remember what the top number was, but uh, I think it ended up being something like 50 miles a week or some, some ridiculous amount. And there was no significant difference in daily energy expenditure, partly because as we become more skilled at an activity, we perform it more economically, we don't burn as many calories, but also because our bodies will adjust how much energy it's spending on other processes to restrict this. There are health benefits to being active in addition to exercise. And again, exercise is one type of physical activity, but not all physical activities. In fact, most other physical activities are not exercise. We need both. We need to exercise, but we should also be moving around and doing things on, on uh, the, the rest of the time. Not all the rest of the time, but at least some of the time, because there are health benefits to this. However, increasing calorie expenditure isn't one of them. It barely makes any difference. Not enough to be worth doing for that purpose. Two, it's not necessary for cardiovascular and metabolic efficiency to do anything other than exercise, meaning properly performed strength training. Properly performed strength training is going to provide the same or better improvements in metabolic and cardiovascular efficiency. Uh, and it's going to do so far more safely, more safely for the heart as well as the joints. Um, the reasons to engage in other physical activities are you have benefit in that your muscles play an important role in circulation. A lot of people have this idea that your heart is this pump that's working by itself to push blood around your body, and that's absolutely not the case. We have a couple of different systems involved with uh, your heart pushing out a lot of blood on the arterial side, but then your breathing be and, and your muscles aid with circulation. Every time you take a breath and then exhale, you have an alternating negative and positive pressure in the thoracic and abdominal cavities, which because there are valves in the veins that are below the level of the heart, that positive and negative pressure, that alternation just from breathing helps to drive venous blood back towards the heart. And then every time you contract a muscle, as the muscle shortens, it widens because its volume doesn't change. And as it widens, it exerts pressure on the veins in and around it. Because there are valves that only let blood go one way back towards the heart in, in your veins, every time a muscle shortens and it, and it contracts and it puts pressure on those veins, it moves blood back towards the heart. The more a muscle shortens, the more it's going to widen, more pressure the more efficient that venous return is going to be. So harder muscle contractions and over greater range of motion, the kind that you have when you're performing an exercise, provide more efficient venous return. There's a whole lot that's going on there that's important uh, that has to do with 
uh, stroke volume and cardiac perfusion, but it, it's safer for the heart than doing jogging. You know, if you look at a lot of uh, locomotor activities, they involve relative well, low effort contractions over relatively short range of motion. Let, let me put in a, a quick reference for viewers or listeners that are listening to this. The book Heartstrong by Ken Hutchins, which is available on, on Andrew's site, does a really good explanation of what, what Andrew's doing, a very good explanation as well. But, you know, for a more elaboration on that, Heartstrong by Ken Hutchins. Great book. You can just Google that. and it'll, I'm sure if you Google Heartstrong, Ken Hutchins, it'll bring you to Drew's site. Yeah, or if, if they go to bay.com slash store, there is an entire section that is just for Ken Hutchins' books, and I think Heartstrong is one of the, the top ones that is listed there. Yeah, yeah, of which I, I have to say, there's a short mention of me in there, in Heartstrong book. Um, so I have to get ready for a, a client shortly, but I really appreciate, I mean, and, and we could talk for hours and hours. And, uh, Easily. Uh, Days. Drew, uh, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, but one thing I really take my hat off to Drew is the way in which he can explain these concepts uh, in a way that, that really can, can be good for if somebody wants to be technical and really dive into nitty gritty, but also make them understandable for the layperson as well. And, you know, pretty hard to trip you up. I mean, you've been there, done that type of thing and, and seen all the different things and heard the various things. So uh, I really look forward in the years to come uh, as, you know, things continue to progress and, and certifications and everything to do with, with proper training. And, um, and I hope we can do this again. And uh, not oh, absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go for now, Drew, so I can get ready for my next client. I hope you have a wonderful day and a great weekend. All right. Thanks. You too, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye now.